Greetings, brethren. It certainly is a privilege to be able to speak to you on this day of Pentecost. And I hope, too, that we can all realize the incredible privilege that you and I have been given to be able to meet together on this day of Pentecost, to understand what this day means, how it relates to the plan of God, how it relates to the coming kingdom of God, and how it relates to you and to me as individuals. As we begin the sermon, I'd like to look at several scriptures that I hope we never lose sight of, that we never let go of, that we can really deeply appreciate. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, where Christ was talking in parables. And he's asked by his disciples, why do you speak in parables? And notice what he answers in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. So then the disciples came to him and they asked him, why do you speak in parables? And notice Jesus' answer. He answered and said to them, to his disciples, because it has been given to you. It has been given to you, my disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the other people that were there, the world outside the small group of disciples, but to them it has not been given. And then he quotes some prophecies from Isaiah about blindness that would come, and people just would not understand the truth. Now God has a plan and a purpose that he's working out. But in verse 16, Jesus mentions again, Blessed are your eyes, to be envied are your eyes, for they see, and your ears they hear. For assuredly I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but didn't see it. And they desired to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear and they didn't understand. Jesus told his disciples to them, and as disciples of Jesus Christ, this applies to us. To us, we have been given an understanding that the world has not been given. And do we grasp that? Do we understand that? Do we value that? Notice another scripture in John chapter 6. Again, where Jesus was talking with his disciples. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 44. The Jews who heard him speaking murmured, and they said... <clears throat> Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? You know, we know who this guy is. His mother's around, his father's around. Why does he say he came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. Now notice again the statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. No one can become a Christian. No one can come to understand the truth of God unless God calls them, unless he opens their mind, which is really a supernatural intervention in a person's mind, where God adjusts the dial, adjusts the focus, and enables a person to see and understand the truth. Towards the end of that conversation, Jesus mentioned there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And then he said again to this group of people, Therefore, or this is why I said to you earlier, 
Therefore I have said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to that person, unless God actually grants you the capacity to understand. Says so from that time many of his disciples, people who were there out of interest, but really didn't understand, they said, look, I, 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 I can't understand this. This doesn't make any sense to me. I've got other things I need to be doing. The point I want to make is that no one can become a Christian. No one can come to understand the truth of God. And a calling is a capacity to understand. If you understand, your mind has been open. That's an incredible privilege, an incredible opportunity. I would just ask you to think about while we're going through this sermon. Do you grasp the privilege that you have been given to understand the truth of God, to understand the plan of God, the purpose of God. Do you value that? Another question I'd like you to think about is, what are you doing with your calling? What are you doing with the understanding that you've been given? Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, that many are called, but only a few are going to be chosen to be in the kingdom of God. Many are called, but few are going to be chosen. That's not only information, but it's an admonition that we need to take seriously the calling that God has given us. What are you doing with your calling? You know, on the holy days, we are given instructions that we're to preach about the meaning of the holy days. We can't just decide to preach on something that we might be interested in. If you notice in... Second Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter four. Paul is giving Timothy instructions of how to conduct a congregation, how to conduct worship services, how to be a minister, how to be a pastor. In Second Timothy, chapter four, beginning in verse one, he says, "I charge you." He's charging Timothy. I commission you, <clears throat> therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Explain the Bible. Explain the scriptures. Be ready in season and out of season. And as the holy day seasons come around, we're to talk about the meaning of the holy days. Paul goes on and says, convince. In other words, explain very clearly. Rebuke. He point out where certain ideas may be wrong. Exhort, encourage people with all long suffering and teaching. You know, do it patiently, but persistently. But then notice in verse 3 this is not only instruction, but it's a prophecy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The they has to be people that knew the truth. So the time is going to come when those who knew the truth or know the truth will not follow it any longer. They will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, their own opinions, their own ideas, because they have itching ears, they want to hear something new, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will look for people. They have something new and interesting and exciting. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not, as long as it's new and interesting. They will turn their ears away from the truth, indicating they knew it at one time. And then they turn away from that truth. 
And they will actually turn aside the fables to lies. Something that sounds interesting, something that sounds good. But Paul cautions, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. It's interesting if we notice the the context in which Paul is writing. If you back up to chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul puts these last two chapters in 2 Timothy in a context of the end time, not just for his time in the first century, but he's looking ahead to the end of the age. Paul says, but know this in the last days, in the last days, perilous times, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, focused on their own ideas, their own theories, their own desires. Lovers of money, looking for ways to make money. In fact, starting your own church today is a way that some people have found to make money. They'll be boasters. They'll be proud, blasphemers, speaking literally against God and against His plan and purpose. Disobedient to parents, being very disrespectful of parents. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. Some people just don't want to forgive someone else. And yet Jesus said we're to forgive 70 times 7. Slanderers without self-control, brutal, callous, despisers of what is good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And Paul says you need to... Stay away from people like that. But Paul is writing in the context of the end times. Yes, there were situations in the first century he was addressing. But he's also talking about things that were going to happen towards the end of the age. And that is when you pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I charge you. Your mission is to preach the word in season and out of season. Because some will be turning away from the truth in the context of the end of the age. These are warnings that were given in the scriptures. But notice how Paul responded as he closed his ministry. Verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is at hand. He realized he didn't have much longer to live. His ministry was about over. He said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. You know, will you keep the faith? Will I keep the faith? Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing and looked forward to the return of Jesus Christ and kept the faith up to the return of Jesus Christ. Notice another warning that we are given in the Scriptures. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, again in the context of the end of the age, Paul mentions in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to Him, So Paul is writing about what it's going to be like just before the return of Jesus Christ. He says, Do not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as as though the day of Jesus Christ had come. He says, There's going to be a great falling away. And a man of sin is going to be revealed. 
This man of sin is defined as a lawless one. You know, the law has been done away with. You don't need to follow these laws of the Old Testament. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. This idea that we don't have to obey the laws of God, they are all been done away with, sounds logical, sounds reasonable, you know, because Christ did away with the law, supposedly. That all sounds good to our mind. But the Bible indicates these are ideas that come from Satan. That's what Paul says. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This lawless one is going to be accompanied by signs and wonders, miracles, images appearing on the walls of barns or on hillsides or in clumps of trees that people want to sit around and watch and look for. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this reason, not loving the truth, not valuing the calling that God has given us, for this reason God will send strong delusion, so that they would believe a lie. You know, many are going to be deceived as we approach the end of the age. They're going to lose the understanding of the truth that they once had because they didn't value that truth. They didn't value the calling. You and I are here on the day of Pentecost to observe the meaning and to remember the meaning of that day. Yet others that used to be here, that could be here, have let go of that truth. And it's going to be very sobering one of these days as they come to realize that. Notice in verse 15, Paul's admonition for people that will be alive during that period of time. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word, that is from the Scriptures, or our epistle. Hold on to the truth that God has given you to understand. Notice quickly the methods that false teachers will use. They used these in the early first century. They're using these same methods today. And they will in the years just ahead of us. And we need to be aware of these things. If we want to hold on to the truth of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions in beginning in verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow is the serpent... Somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds, talking to the people in Corinth, but talking to us today, may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, now they were preaching another Jesus in the first century, but the people were preaching another Jesus today. A Jesus that was born on Christmas. The biblical Jesus wasn't born on Christmas. The biblical Jesus talked about a coming kingdom of God, not going to heaven. The gospel was about a coming kingdom of God, about the fact that he died for our sins. Now, the Protestant and the Catholic world today teaches that Christ died for our sins, but then if you accept Jesus, you can go to heaven. That's a different gospel. That's not the gospel of the Scriptures. Preaching another Jesus, another gospel, and being led by a different spirit. Another spirit is not a spirit of truth. It's a spirit that accepts fables. It's a spirit that believes lies. It's too lazy to look into uh, the facts of history and find the truth. 
These were the methods that were used in the first century, and they're the same methods being used today. But this is why, because of false teachers and misleading ideas, this is why that the brother of Jesus Christ, a man by the name of Jude, wrote what he did. He was dealing with false teachers. He was dealing with people coming into the church and leading people away out of the church. Notice in Jude, the third verse, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, to earnestly contend for the truth that was entrusted to the saints. You know, we've got to hang on to the truth because people will try and take it out of our hands. Jude said, we've got to earnestly contend, stand up for the truth. Notice in verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. And we've had people come into the church over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They come in with their own agenda, their own ideas, or they develop a different agenda once they're in the church. For certain men have crept in who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. Now, they may use Jesus' name. They may talk about God. But Jude says they're ungodly who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. You know, the grace of God, we don't deserve to be called. We didn't do anything to deserve you know, God opening our minds. That's through grace. It's unmerited pardon. It's a gift that God gives us. But then to turn that understanding and that calling into licentiousness, well, you can just do whatever you want. You can worship God on whatever day you want to worship Him on. You can keep Christmas, but if you do it to Jesus Christ, then that's okay. This is how the reasoning goes. Who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude was writing in a period of time, probably around 67 A.D., about the same time Second Peter was written. He's writing to people who were being tempted by false ideas to let go of the truth and to accept different ideas. Brethren, we have got not only to know the truth and to prove it to ourselves, but we've got to preach that truth and we've got to follow that truth and hang on to that truth to earnestly contend for the faith that was once given to the saints. In this sermon on Pentecost, I hope that we can value the calling that we've been given, the fact that we've been called to become the first fruits in God's plan and purpose, to be in the kingdom of God so that we can teach others. Not everyone is being given that opportunity today. You know, the day of Pentecost is called the Feast of First Fruits because God is calling and training a group of people that he's going to use to begin working with the entire world. That's an incredible calling, an incredible opportunity. Do we value that? As we get into the sermon, let's ask a couple of questions then. Why are we here on Pentecost? You know, you're here because, because you believe that we should be keeping Pentecost. But why are you here in addition to that, what are the truths that we need to understand about Pentecost and hold on to so that we never lose those? What are the lessons that we can learn today 
what will we learn from being here today that perhaps we didn't fully understand before we came to services today? What can we learn? One of the first things I think that we need to remind ourselves of and never forget is that we are commanded to be here. You're not here out of the goodness of your heart. You're here because you were commanded by God to be here. Just as we are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We are to remember these holy days and to be here. In the Bible, they're called holy convocations. The word convocation means a commanded assembly. When I went to college years ago, we had a convocation every Wednesday morning at the college I attended. It was a commanded assembly. There was an older student sitting up front looking out at all of our assigned seats. And if he saw an empty seat where, say, my name was, I got checked off as being absent. See, we were required to be there. It was a convocation. These holy days are holy convocations. They are commanded assemblies by God. He wants us to remember what these days mean and never forget what these days mean. But, you know, ancient Israel, who was given these instructions, forgot. They forgot who they were. They forgot what their mission was. They forgot who blessed them. Just as our modern Israelite nations have forgotten who we are, why we were blessed by God, what God called us to do. And we're going to suffer for that. There will be consequences for that. But let's notice quickly, go back to Exodus chapter 23 where God was giving a series of instructions to the nation of Israel, bringing them out of captivity in Egypt. He was setting up a nation. And these were the basic guidelines that they were, were given. In Exodus 23, beginning in verse 14, it says, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. So three seasons, three periods of time in the year were to be feasts to God. These were to be pilgrimage feasts. Once they set up the nation of Israel, they would go up to Jerusalem during these periods of time, three times a year. And they're identified in verse 15. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this would be the Passover Days of Unleavened Bread period in the springtime. Then in verse 16, And the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. So that would be the Pentecost period of time. It's called the Feast of Harvest or first fruits here. And then the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year. This would be the Feast of Tabernacles, period of time. So in Exodus 23, God says, three times a year, three seasons of year. Passover and unleavened bread, then a Pentecost period, period of first fruits, and then the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is repeated in Exodus 34. In Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 21 through about verse 25. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, of first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, that's tabernacles. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord God of Israel. Down in verse 25, you shall, offer, you shall not offer blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. So here again are these three periods of time in the year. The Feast of Weeks, or First Fruits, the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the Feast of the Passover. 
Next, if we go to Leviticus chapter 23, here we have a listing of the holy days. They're not called the holy days of Moses. They're called the Feast of the Lord. These are God's feasts. You know, we don't change these things. These are commanded to be kept forever, as the scriptures state. But in verse 15, it says, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath after the... Um, between the holy days and days of unleavened bread, you're to count 50 after the, the seventh Sabbath. is to be a holy day. This was the day of, of um, the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost. It's to be a memorial and it's to be forever. If we go next to Deuteronomy chapter 16. So we find God repeating several different times, three or four different times, in the Old Testament, when these holy days were to be kept. Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning verse 13. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. Then down in verse 16, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, so this would be the Passover, days of unleavened bread period in the spring, at the Feast of Weeks, which we will see a little bit later is called Pentecost, where you count 50, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. So here it's called Tabernacles as opposed to in gathering. And they shall not appear before the Lord God empty. So the Bible makes plain the three times in the year, in the spring, uh, in the summer, and then in the fall, were to be holy days or holy day periods. They were to be uh, pilgrimage feasts where they were to gather together as a, in a holy convocation. Now, why did God give these things and what warnings accompanied these instructions? Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is where Moses is kind of reviewing everything with the Israelites before they went into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is kind of a summary chapter explaining who they are, what their mission was, and how they were to worship God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1 says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe. And notice why God gave these instructions. That you may live. That life will go well with you. These were not burdens. They were to be blessings. That you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of, of your fathers is giving to you. You shall not add to the word which I command you. And don't start bringing in outside ideas and other pagan holidays. Don't add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it. In other words, don't take anything away. Don't eliminate things just because it's uncomfortable for you or you don't agree with it. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Down in verse 6, Therefore be careful to observe these commandments. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God gave his laws, including the Sabbath and the holy days, in order that Israel would stand out from the other nations and then that they would be blessed and they would notice those blessings. God wanted Israel to be a light and an example to the world. Just as Jesus told Christians, let your light shine, be a light and an example to the world. 
This has been God's purpose all along with ancient Israel and with those that are called into his church today. In verse 7, God wanted the other nations to respond this way and say about the Israelites, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as in all the law which I set before you? Properly applied, these laws are not a burden. They're a blessing. And God intended it that way. Now notice verse 9. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. How God has delivered you from slavery in Egypt. He has blessed you. He's brought you into a promised land. Never forget those things. Never forget those things. Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. You explain to them that they have been blessed by God. That they're part of a special people. Verse 23, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, lest you forget the calling that you've been given and you turn back to worshiping carved images or keeping pagan holidays such as people are doing today. God was very plain and very clear to the ancient Israelites. Let's look finally at uh, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Beginning in verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Teach your children... The laws of God, verse 7. Bind them on your, your foreheads and on your hands. In other words, <laughs> internalize these things. Verses 11 and 12, it says, Whenever you find you're being blessed, your houses are full of goods, and so on, it says, Then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Never forget these things. Verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. You don't forget these things. Down in verse 6 of chapter 7, God reminded the Israelites who they were and why he was calling them. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Some people would accuse us in the church of God as being exclusive. God is calling a small group of people today. The Bible makes that very plain and clear. We've been called to be lights and examples. We wouldn't understand what we do if God had not opened our minds. Do you value that? Do you see that? Do you understand that? For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the the, uh, earth. It's not because we're better than anybody else. We're simply not. And he reminded the Israelites, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, because you were better than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Verse 9, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, and he's faithful and he keeps his promises. God called the Israelites, gave them his law, they forgot it, and they went into captivity. God has called us today 
given us the privilege of understanding His plan and His purpose that's pictured in the holy days, giving us His Spirit to enable us to understand the truth of God. We never want to take that for granted. We never want to take that for granted. But notice uh, a final warning in the book of Deuteronomy. And this applies to us today, and we need to be very alert to these things. The Israelites were told that they were God's chosen people. They were given His laws to set them apart from the rest of the world. He wanted them to be a light and an example. But Israelites and human beings have certain tendencies to forget the truth, to lose an understanding that they've been given because they find other things more attractive, like a cow in a pasture. The grass is always greener. On the other side of the fence, you've probably driven by a pasture and you've seen these cows reaching through the, the fence, even pushing the fence over sometimes because they see the grass is greener outside. But, you know, there's often less grass outside than there is in the pasture. But Moses was given a warning to pass on to the Israelites. Unfortunately, it came true. But this also applies to our modern Israelite peoples today. Verse 29 of chapter 31 of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31, verse 29. Moses said, after telling them to take the book of the law, put it in the ark, remember those things, for I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt. You will lose the truth. You will drift way off track and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. Now notice the next phrase. And evil will befall you in the latter days. You're going to be in trouble in the latter days at the end of the age because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord God and provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. You will not remember. You'll not be keeping the Sabbath or the holy days. You will lose the truth. That was the same thing Timothy was told by Paul. In the latter days, people will drift away from the truth. They will not value the truth. They'll be deceived and disillusioned because they didn't love the truth. One of the lessons that we can learn about the day of Pentecost is we're commanded to be here. We're commanded to keep this day of Pentecost so that we never forget, we never lose sight of what it means. Let's notice some New Testament instructions about the holy days. You know, it's comfortable to believe today, and many Protestants and Catholics do, that the, the Old Testament laws have been done away with. Jesus Christ came to do away with the laws and the restrictions, including the holy days. And that we can keep Christmas, we can keep Easter. One of the books I was going through said, uh, Easter is the new Christian Pentecost. That's a bunch of baloney. That's ridiculous. Easter is a pagan holiday. It was incorporated in the church around three or 400 A.D. to try and make it easier for pagans to convert to Christianity. Easter's not the new Pentecost. Jesus Christ kept Pentecost, as we will see. The early church kept Pentecost. We're keeping it today. It'll be kept in the coming kingdom of God. Just notice quickly, Jesus did not do away with the laws of God that we have been reading in the Old Testament. Notice in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 41, Jesus was taught by his parents to keep the holy days. In verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. 
And when he was 12, he went up. So for 12 years, Jesus was taught to keep the holy days. Here we have him keeping the Passover. Verse 51, after they went back from Jerusalem from keeping the Passover, then he went down with them, that is with his parents, to Nazareth and was subject to them. Jesus followed the instructions of his parents, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So as a boy up to age 12, Jesus was taught to keep the holy days, which he did. In Luke chapter 22, towards the end of Jesus' life, we find Jesus still keeping the Passover, keeping the holy days. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, called the Passover. Verse 7, Then the day of unleavened bread came, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, said, Go prepare the Passover. So here's Jesus' instructions to his disciples to prepare for the Passover. Then that evening, verse 14, When the hour had come, he, Jesus, sat down with his twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, Now, this doesn't sound like a person that was doing away with holy days. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've been looking forward to this. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to do this with you again until we're together in the coming kingdom of God. Jesus didn't do away with the Passover or with the holy days. As we will see, Jesus instructed his disciples to keep the holy days, including the Feast of Pentecost. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Now, this is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. These holy days were not done away with. They were still keeping them. It's important to know these things. Because we need to be able to explain what we believe and hold fast to the truth of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Now being and, and being assembled together with them, he, Jesus Christ, commanded them. Notice what he did. He didn't say, please come, you'll give your heart to me. He commanded them, his disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus was giving his uh, disciples instructions, very clear instructions. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, uh, but uh, which the Father has put under his own authority. But verse 8, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's why he commanded them to wait and stay in Jerusalem. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The outpouring of God's Spirit was for a reason, to enable them to be witnesses to the entire world, to grow and be different, to come out of this world. Now, if we go to Acts chapter 2, remember, Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, stay around uh, until the Holy Spirit comes. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts, verse 1, a lot in this one verse. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, 
they were all with one accord in one place. The disciples of Jesus Christ were keeping the day of Pentecost. Hadn't been done away with. They were in one place in one accord. They were in agreement. They didn't have groups over here and groups over there with different names of churches of God. They were together in one place and of one accord. They were of one mind and they were keeping the day of Pentecost. And because they were obedient, because they were following God's instruction, suddenly there came from a sound from heaven, a rushing wind filled the whole um, area, the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared on their heads then tongues of fire, and each of them spoke in different tongues. Now Luke makes it very plain and clear down here in verse 11. They were speaking in different languages, not unknown tongues, not gibberish, not glossolalia, Notice in verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. People heard them speak in their language. They were speaking so that they could be understood, so the gospel could be understood by people who spoke different languages. That's what this is all about. This has been so twisted today by some people who try to get this ecstatic experience where they just jabber. That is not what this is all about. There's several other places, two other places in the book of Acts, where when Cornelius, a Gentile, came to Peter, God showed by allowing uh, Cornelius, enabling Cornelius to speak in a different language, that God was showing Peter, look, I want this person in the church too. I want Gentiles in the church. God was leading and guiding by the power of his spirit. Whenever... uh, Paul went to Ephesus, another account in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 6. Uh, Let's go to there, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. There are three occurrences in the book of Acts where people spoke in tongues, spoke in different languages, but it was God showing that this is the direction he wanted to go, and he used the speaking in different languages as a sign to the apostles so that they would know what God wanted done. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it says, It happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? In other words, when you were baptized, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said to him, we have not even so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? In other words, who baptized you? And they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John did indeed baptized. John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance. In other words, you need to repent of your sins, make a commitment to God saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, so this is another aspect of the ceremony. You're baptized, you have hands laid on you by the disciples of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, or they spoke in an inspired way in a language. Now, the men were about 12 in all. So God was showing Paul that this is the direction I want you to go. These are people that I want to be part of my church. 
So these are things that we can learn about the Holy Spirit, how God has worked with that power. But they received that spirit on the day of Pentecost, the original apostles, because they were of one accord in one place. They were following the instructions of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was beginning the New Testament church. It began on Pentecost with the outpouring in a very dramatic way of God's spirit. This is what this day of Pentecost means. It pictures the outpouring of God's spirit. And it was on the day of Pentecost. What we will also see as we go through the sermon, that that spirit was given to the disciples, to the apostles, to those that God was calling. It was not given to the entire world at that time. Let's notice what else we can learn from the scriptures, what the scriptures teach us about the Holy Spirit how to receive it and what to do with it in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, Peter spoke at some length on the day of Pentecost. He was inspired by God's Spirit. It was a very very dramatic setting in which the Holy Spirit was given. And those that heard Peter speak were moved, and they wanted to be part of what was happening. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36 where Peter ends up his sermon he says therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ now many of the Jews knew the scriptures about a prophesied Messiah that would come and they were being told by Peter that he's come he's here and you crucified him and notice the response of a number of these people verse 37 now when they heard this that Christ was the Messiah, that he was crucified by their compatriots. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? In other words, what do we do now? How can we be a part of this? Peter said to them, repent. Change your life. You turn your life around. Begin to obey God's instructions. Repent, repent of sins, and sin is a transgression of the laws of God. Repent, let every one of you be baptized. Make a commitment to live differently. Make a commitment to change your life and get into harmony with the laws of God. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, so that your sins can be forgiven. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift that God makes available to those that he calls and then to those who make a commitment in baptism, repent of their sins, make a commitment to live God's way of life and have hands laid on them coming under the authority of the apostles or under the authority of the church and then begin to live differently. The apostles were, excuse me, the people that were called to become Christians were not the only people that were attracted by the powers that they saw of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. Notice in Acts chapter 8. Philip goes down to Samaria, preaches the gospel. Uh, Many people are baptized. But there was a man there who had been influential prior to their coming, a man by the name of Simon, who was a magician, or sometimes referred to as Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. Uh, He was baptized. He apparently was able to convince Philip, look, I I want to change my life. Uh, I want to be part of this. 
You know, I've counseled people that uh, were able to convince me that they wanted to be baptized. In some cases, I had reservations, but we baptized them. And in a matter of time, in some cases, several weeks, in other cases, might have been several months or several years, it became obvious they were never really converted. They never really changed their life. And the same was with Simon. Uh, he was baptized, but uh, as we see from the following account, uh, he had other motives in mind. When he saw that they laid hands on people and people received the Holy Spirit, verse 18, it says, When Simon saw that it was through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. I'd like to make an offering. I could, I could really help you out uh, if you can give me some of this power. He was trying to buy an apostleship. He was trying to buy access to this power. He said uh, he offered the money saying, Give me this power also that anyone whom I may lay hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. But that, he basically played his hand, and, and Peter saw that uh, he doesn't understand. Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You had neither part nor lot or portion in this matter. In other words, uh, you, know, you don't understand what's going on here. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore. Of this your wickedness, and ask God if perhaps that uh, the thought of your heart might be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So here was a man who tried to buy the power of God's Spirit because he saw miracles were worked with that Spirit. Is there anything else we have to do to receive God's Spirit if we repent and we're baptized and have hands laid on us? Notice in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, another key to understanding how to receive and how to use the Spirit of God. If we go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 32, we find out that there's something else we have to do besides repent and be baptized. We're told here that we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. You know, if we're not keeping the Sabbath, we're not keeping the holy days, uh, we are not going to receive God's Spirit. Or if we've been baptized, if we've repented and been baptized and received God's Spirit, we're not going to keep it if we don't obey God. Jesus told his disciples this on another occasion in John chapter 14. Now, these are scriptures that we read during the Passover. In John chapter 14, this was what Jesus was talking about with his disciples the night before he was crucified. Now, this doesn't square with what a lot of people are being told today. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, Keep my commandments. The people are being told today, well, you can't keep the commandments. You're not perfect. Christ kept them for you, so therefore you don't have to keep them. No, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then one of the blessings, one of the, one of the fruits of keeping the commandments. And I will pray the Father or ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he or it might abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. Jesus told his disciples, the world can't receive my spirit. 
The world can't keep the Holy, or cannot receive the Holy Spirit because they are not keeping the commandments of God. Down in verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, whom or that the Father will send in my name, he or it will teach you all things. It is God's Spirit that opens our mind to understand the truth. It's God's Spirit that opens our mind to recognize the truth. And even implants within us this desire to learn and live by the truth. These are powerful scriptures. Jesus said the world can't receive the Spirit. They're not going to understand the truth because they don't have my Spirit. And he's talking about situation today where you've got one million, excuse me, one billion Muslims in the world. Now, they're religious. They believe in Allah, their perception of God. But, you know, their perception of a way of life is very different from what the scriptures describe. You've got two billion so-called Christians in the world, Catholics and Protestants, but they don't understand the truth of God. The Pope doesn't understand. Billy Graham did not understand Jerry Falwell does not understand today. The world, the Christian world, doesn't understand the truth of God because they are not being led by the Spirit of God. That's what the Scriptures say. A little bit more about the Spirit of God. It's talked about the, it's, it's called the Spirit of Truth. It says it will teach you all things. Have you ever wondered why the Church of God understands the plan of God? Why does the church of God understand the holy days? Why does the church of God understand about the coming kingdom of God? Why does the church of God understand Bible prophecy when most other Christian religious groups don't? It's because God has given his spirit to his disciples, to his true disciples as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 13. He said, it's been given to you to understand. It's not been given to them. This is what the power of God's Spirit does. It's very real. And we're living proof of that. Hopefully that's proof to you. Should be. A little bit more about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 26. It says, but when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. It'll testify of me. It'll convince your mind of the truth. John chapter 16, verse 13. However, when he or it, really is a better translation, the Spirit of truth has come, it will guide you into all truth. It will guide the disciples of Jesus Christ into the truth, to recognize what is true and what is not true. So these are promises and descriptions about the Holy Spirit. Let's look at one other section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that talks about the Holy Spirit. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he's explaining certain fundamental concepts to them. In verse 7, he says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained from the, before the ages, which none of the rulers or leaders or thinkers of this age knew. For had they known it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But God has revealed, verse 10, these things to us through His Spirit. It's God's Spirit that gives us understanding of the truth. 
And he makes that available to those that he calls and those who repent and those who nourish and are led by God's Spirit. When we receive God's Spirit, we need to nourish that Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.16 talks about the inward man, the inward person, the Spirit of God must be renewed or nourished daily. We've got to pray, we've got to study, we've got to nourish that Spirit. When a woman becomes pregnant, that's not the time to go on a diet and not eat. When God gives us His Spirit, we have got to do our part to nourish that Spirit, be led by that Spirit, bear fruit with that Spirit. In John 15, verse 8, again the night of the Passover, Jesus said, He is glorified when we bear much fruit. We're given God's Spirit, but then a responsibility comes with that gift. God wants to see us bear fruit with that Spirit. Let's notice quickly what some of the fruits of that Spirit are. Uh, In John 15, where Jesus talked about uh, bearing much fruit. And notice one of the, the things that Jesus was looking for. Verse 16 of John 15, You did not choose me, I chose you, and appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask in my... uh, Father's name that he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. Your love is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 5. Love is an unselfish, outgoing concern for others. You know, Jesus Christ gave his life for the sins of the world because he loved the world. He loved the people. Now, we shouldn't love the world's ways, but we should love the people the people that God has created in His image. We need to develop compassion for people and show that love in John 13.35, I believe it is. John 13.35, one of the distinguishing characteristics of a Christian is that we have love for one another. He didn't say the distinguishing characteristics are self-righteously keeping the Sabbath. He didn't say the distinguishing characteristics are saving your second tithe. Now, these are important. But he said the distinguishing characteristic would be this compassion and love that Christians have for others. Notice some other fruits of God's Spirit in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, we could go to Galatians chapter 5 and go through the traditional fruits of God's Spirit, but I wanted to focus on some other things today in addition to, first, to Galatians chapter 5. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul tells Timothy, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God. The word in the Greek here means to fan into flame, bring to a boil, you know, blow on the embers, cause it to burst into flame. You know, stir up the gift of God, pray, study, draw close to God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now notice the fruits of God's Spirit. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. If you're filled with a lot of doubts, a lot of uncertainties, you know, I don't know where the church is, I don't know where the truth is, does God love me? This is not the spirit of, of, this is not the fruit of God's Spirit. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. The Greek word here is dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. (coughs) You know, this big explosion. 
has to do with confidence, has to do with conviction. You've proven what the truth is. You know where the church is. You know what the purpose of the church is. You know why God has called you. He's given us a spirit of power and of love. We've got to develop these fruits. And of a sound mind, a discerning mind. You're able to discern what the truth is. You're able to discern where God is working. You're able to discern where the church is. And you're convicted about those things. These are the fruits of God's Spirit. Another section of Scripture in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3. James is talking about the fruits of God's Spirit. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3 of James. Who's wise and understanding among you? Paul or John, James is kind of poking at them a little bit. Let's see by the good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom or this action doesn't come from God, doesn't come from above. It's earthly and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, and if we have those things, we're not being led by God's Spirit. The results are confusion and every evil thing. But the wisdom that is from above, the fruits of God's Spirit, really, it's pure. It focuses on what's right and good. Then it's peaceable. You're at peace with yourself. You're able to be at peace with others. You're gentle. You're not on edge all the time. You're willing to yield. doesn't have to be my way or the highway. You know, people can talk to you. You're approachable. You're full of mercy and good fruits without partiality. You don't just get around your friends and talk about whatever you want to talk about and then promote your friends or uh, go along with your friends without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, these are the fruits of God's Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, unity is, are, again, one of the important fruits of God's Spirit. You know, we're not fractured all over the place if we're being led by God's Spirit. We're of one mind, we're of one heart, we're of one focus. In Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul says, Stand fast in the Spirit. Stay focused on the truth. Now, these are the fruits of God's Spirit along with Galatians 5, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience. These are the fruits that we've got to strive to develop. If we don't, if we don't develop those fruits, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. You know, why has God given His Spirit to the church today? Why has God given us His Spirit? You know, Zechariah 4.6, Zechariah writes, It is not by might, but by the power of God's Spirit that we're able to grow and overcome, that we're able to do the work of God. It's not by might, but by the power of God's Spirit. Jesus Christ worked with the church in the first century to guide the church using the power of His Spirit. And He's going to be working with the church today, leading and guiding through the power of His Spirit. God has given us His Spirit so that we can recognize and understand the truth of God, preparing the way for the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. That's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Our mission is to recapture true values and to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ, explaining the meaning of the holy days, explaining why we keep them, 
that the day of Pentecost pictures the outpouring of God's Spirit, which we need so that we can grow and overcome and accomplish the work of God. God's Spirit gives us an understanding of Bible prophecy. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. So that we can understand the significance of world events today and explain that significance to the Israelite nations and to the world. Brethren, we have been called to receive God's Spirit, to nourish God's Spirit, and to be led by God's Spirit. We're here today on the day of Pentecost to be reminded of these things so that we never forget and we never lose sight of the fact that God is calling us. God has intervened in our lives, given us the capacity to understand His truth by the power of His Spirit. We've got a responsibility when God gives us His Spirit to nourish that Spirit and be led by that Spirit. Brethren, I hope the day of Pentecost will be a blessing to you that we can appreciate and value the incredible calling that we've been given and the access that God has given us to Him through the power of His Spirit so that we can become the first fruits in God's plan in the kingdom of God.